This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody. It's so good to have you with us here at Vortex Church today. We're in a series called Unhinged, really examining what happens on the inside of our hearts as we ex- like experience offense. And I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but when we experience offense, oftentimes the things that God has been building inside of us become unhinged. And as we get started today, I want to go to a verse that we kind of anchored the first talk in this series in. It comes out of Luke chapter 17. And that's where Jesus said to his disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. Think about that. If Jesus says it's impossible, it's probably impossible. It's impossible in this world to not walk into seasons where there are going to be opportunities for offense. Here's the question though, and you have to think about this for yourself and you have to think about this in your life. There's no real way to go through an offense and not be changed. Every time we experience the opportunity to become offended, it's going to do something in our hearts. And here's the question. Will it make you better or will it make you bitter? Where's it going to go? See, today I'm going to talk about what it would take to be rescued from offense. Because I believe that God actually wants to take the opportunities to become offended and use them in our lives to make us better. Now, you may be that person that's out there and you're you're saying, Kevin, I hear all this talk of forgiveness, but you just don't know what they did to me. You just don't know. And I've sat down with people who've said that with tears in their eyes and, and I've seen people with anger in their hearts say the exact same thing. And there are many of you out there today. That after sitting through these first couple weeks, you're sitting there saying, I, I get that we're talking about overcoming offense, but you just don't know what they did to me. But I would submit to you, no, you just don't know what you did to Jesus. You just don't know what you did to Jesus. Because the first thing in your notes today is this. That a Christian who is not willing to forgive is a Christian who doesn't understand what they've been forgiven of. A Christian who is not willing to forgive is a Christian who doesn't understand what they've been forgiven of. And for the rest of our time together this morning, I'm really going to try to to bring out that idea. Jesus does such a marvelous job in the comprehensive teaching that he left behind throughout his entire ministry of developing that idea for us in its full. And in Matthew chapter 8, really the entire chapter focuses on offense. And it's one of those beautiful moments. Y'all know Peter? 
right? Peter was that gung-ho disciple, right? He was, he was the one who would charge forward and attack when they came to arrest Jesus, cutting an ear off. He's, he's the one who would impulsively say, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus would reply to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. But sometimes I forget that we, we, we think about Peter as the great leader in the church, but Peter grew up under the law. He grew up with an understanding that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the, the understanding was that if you do it to me, I can do it to you. You kill my dog, I get to kill your dog. Right? You punch me in the face, I can punch you in the face. And so Jesus is asked this question by Peter in Matthew 18. And if you really read into it, you see that Peter's heart is really trying to grasp the level of forgiveness that Jesus is inviting them to. And then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Seven times is a lot, y'all. I don't know if anybody's offended you seven times, but that's a pretty significant number of offenses. But Jesus replies, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. And then Luke, if you look in his gospel, adds to that moment the detail in one day. 70 times seven in one day. That's 490 times that somebody would sin against you that Jesus is saying, you need to be willing to forgive them in one day. Now, I don't know about you, but that would require you, if you were in relationship with me, you to sin against me every three minutes provided we didn't go to sleep at all. And I know some people who can sin really good, but I don't know anybody that can sin that good. Right? That's a level of sinning against somebody that I don't think we've ever seen or experienced. I think that Jesus is making a point that our forgiveness is to be like our Heavenly Father's forgiveness. Inexhaustible. Peter, it's not seven times. It's as many times as it takes. And then to make the point, he goes on to tell a parable because that's what Jesus did. He put truth and wrapped it in the context of stories. It's a really powerful thing. And sometimes I think that we miss some of the points of the stories because we just skirt over them as stories. But this one is so powerful and it begins at the very end of Matthew chapter 18. It's about a, a king who is examining his accounts and he's finding that many of the servants in his kingdom are now indebted to him. And so he brings in a servant that owes him 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents. Now, in our day and age, we would think that a talent would be some sort of money or currency, but it wasn't. Actually, talent meant a, a form of weight. And it referenced the amount that a man could carry. Now, most scholars that believe on average a talent would have represented about 75 pounds. So that means we're talking about 750,000 pounds of what? Well, think about the day of Jesus. The medium of exchange was either gold or silver. 
750,000 pounds of gold and silver. Let me just put that in context so that you can understand the debt that this servant had to the king. If it was gold today, this week, gold is trading at $1,280 an ounce. That would be $1.5 billion in debt. Let's just say it was silver. Silver this week is trading at $17.24 an ounce. That would come up to around $207 million. I don't know about you, but to me, that's an unpayable debt. It's an unpayable debt. How many of y'all would say it's an unpayable debt? Raise your hand out there. How many of y'all? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you say that that's an unpayable debt. That there's no way that that servant could have paid the debt. All right, you can put your hands down. If you didn't raise your hand, um, would you please see me after the service today? Because I have some great questions and incentives about how we can reach the lost in this county. Because that is such an unpayable debt. $1.5 billion. There are very few men on the face of the planet that could even consider paying that kind of a debt. And so this is what happens. But the man fell down before his master and begged, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him. And he released him from his debt and forgave his debt. See, Jesus is making a point. He's actually casting in this story the king as Father God. And we, me and you, we are cast as that servant with the unpayable debt. See, our sin leveraged for us an unpayable debt. But God, through Jesus, chose to forgive us and cancel our debt. He chose to cancel our debt. I think that's exactly why Colossians 2.14 references what Jesus did for us this way, where it says that he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Jesus canceled our unpayable debt, which is why I say that a person who cannot forgive is a person who has forgotten what they were forgiven of. Because every single one of us because of our sin was leveraged between us and God an unpayable debt. We could never have afforded or earned our way out of it. There's no way. It was unpayable. It was outside of our capacity. And God paid that debt for us and forgave us of that debt. Think about that. It's a really inconvenient truth. Because the truth is, is that because of that debt that we owe, every single one of us deserved hell. We deserved hell. We deserved eternal separation from God. We deserved death. We deserved that. That's exactly what we deserved. But we don't get what we deserve, do we? We don't get what we deserve. I think that at this point, it's really helpful to ask the question, why do we struggle so much to forgive when we have been forgiven so much? I think the first reason, and this is in your notes today, is that we categorize sin. 
We categorize sin. And we have big sins like murder and adultery and stealing. But then we have, instead of sins, we like to call them struggles. Our own personal struggles. You know, I'm struggling within me. I'm just, you know, I'm a little jealous of what my friends got. I struggle with that. Oh, I'm struggling with some gossip. I love to talk about people. It's a struggle. Oh, you know, I struggle a little bit with lust. See, the problem is, is that there's no difference between those two things. See, this perception is actually born out of an old perception of sin where there's this passage in Proverbs where it lists out um, six and seven things that God hates. And then centuries ago, that list was condensed and it later became what we call now the seven deadly sins. But if you pay attention to what the scriptures say, you're not going to find it to actually represent what it has come to represent. Actually, look at that with me. Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates. No seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do the wrong thing, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who sows discord in a family. Pay attention. Do you see adultery on that list? Now, I'm not condoning adultery. I'm not even giving permission for it. But do you see that on that list? It's not. Actually, do you see stealing on that list? No, you don't. And the, the problem is, is that we've labeled big sins and little sins. You know what is on that list that I find interesting? At the very end, the last thing, the thing that the Lord detests the most is a person who sows discord in a family. A person who gossips. A person who talks negatively and slanders someone else. Think about that, man. Think about it. Like we call that a struggle, but God calls that a big sin. Here's the problem. When we categorize sin, we only do it through our perspective. And the problem is, is that we look at other people and say their problems are big problems. But my problems, well, they're, they're struggles. I'm just struggling with them. You see, if we would treat our inability to forgive the same way that we treat stealing or murder or adultery, we'd probably get delivered from it. And the problem is, is that we don't realize that our capacity to not forgive, unforgiveness, is sin. It's simply sin. I think the second reason that we struggle to forgive people is that we judge from a distance what can only be known close up. We judge from a distance what can only be known close up. How many of y'all would admit today that you had prejudged a situation or a person, but when you got to know it a little bit more, you found out, you know what? Not so bad. It's not what I thought it was. 
Well, if you think about Matthew 18 and that scene with the servant and the king, it kind of gives us a glimpse into the reality behind that. What's going on is the servant is directly in front of the king. He's in dialogue with the king. It is his presence and proximity that gives the king the chance to see him and have mercy on him. You see, the difference between God and us as we look at other people from distances, God knows our stories intimately. He knows each and every person in this room, each and every person that's listening to this message. He knows your story intimately. And he has made a decision that with every person in humanity, they are all willing and worthy of forgiveness. They're all, if, if they're willing, they are worthy of forgiveness. So I have this question for you. If God made a decision that somebody is worthy of forgiveness, who are we to say that they are not? Who are we? Well, the only way that we can say that is if we become judge. It's the only way. If we become judge. And James 4, James 4 speaks directly to the judging that we do in our hearts. Look at what it says. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. What do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? We're not supposed to judge. God is judge. And the problem is, is that so many of us have judged those people. Almost everybody in here has a those people. And you may not know what your those people is, but your those people are this. The world would be better off if those people behaved like me, thought like me, or believed like me. Your those people might be a racial group or ethnic group. It might be another religion. It might even be people who don't believe in Jesus. But the world would be better off with those people and we judge those people from a distance and we don't get to know those people. But the problem is, is that for almost everyone, we have an exception to those people. And it kind of goes like this. Those people are just not right. But the exception is the exception to that rule. Why? Why does it work that way? You know, it's simple. It's because we got to know them close up. Because you can't judge from a distance what can only be known close up. And the problem is, is that oftentimes, when we're unwilling to forgive, we don't know the story intimately. Over the last several weeks, I've had several people stop by and say, thank you for preaching these messages. It's caused me to go ask for forgiveness and have conversations. And I found out that the stuff that I was offended about wasn't even real because I got to have a conversation with somebody. Think about that. 
You can't judge from a distance what can only be known close up. Now, in 2009, a story broke across the nation. Now, all of y'all live in different worlds. Some of y'all live in business leader world. Some of you live in teacher world. Some of you live in government employee world. And because of the worlds that you live in, you know the stories that emerge out of those worlds. But because I live in church leader world, I tend to hear the stories that come out of church leader world. And in 2009, one of the most significant stories, probably in the last decade emerged out of Colorado, out of a church called New Life Church, in a man named Ted Haggard. Now, Ted was later featured on Oprah as he told his story. He's been featured in many different publications after the, the news broke. You see, Ted was a, a fundamentalist, very hard preacher. He had started this wonderful, life-giving church in Colorado Springs that exploded in growth. Just exploded. I mean, it, it was massive in influence, massive in size. But he had personal struggles, specifically with homosexuality and some drugs. Now, he had hid that for decades, but it came out almost all of a sudden, all at once. And I watched as it happened, as people from all across the nation started, especially other church leaders, started to exclaim how horrible it was, how, how broken it was. And it is horrible, and it was broken, and it is not what God would want. And I don't want to in any way diminish that. But over the years and even since then, in the past several years, there have been church leaders that, that experience those kinds of moments. And every time it happens, every time it happens, my first thought is not, how bad is that sin? My first thought is, dear God, that could be me. Because if you dissected my brain or you were able to tap into my thoughts, it would take about 15 minutes to completely disqualify me. And I know that. I know the, the struggles and the things that are going on on the inside of me. Do you know what a struggle is? A struggle is not just a weakness. A struggle is actually something that you're fighting in. And I know that there are struggles that I have. There are sin issues that exist in my heart. There, I'm predisposed to. And so for me, there's this really strong sense when that kind of stuff happens that it, it could be me. You've heard me say this before. There were all just one or two bad decisions away from being in a very bad place. You see, the problem is that sometimes we forget that sin is sin. Sin is sin. It cannot be categorized in big sins or little sins. I love what Billy Graham said, that a little rock will sink to the bottom of the lake just like a big rock will. Think about that. Think about the, how profound that is. 
Because a lot of times we categorize sin and we think of it in, in rankings, but that's not the truth. Sin is sin and sin leads to death and sin condemns you to hell. It is what separates us from God. But Jesus died to pay that unpayable debt. And that unpayable debt for many of us, it includes unforgiveness. So Jesus continues the story in Matthew 18. The servant leaves the presence of the king, having been forgiven a debt that we would estimate at $1.5 billion. Massive debt been forgiven. And he goes out and he sees another servant that owed him. In the, the monetary wage that's left for us to understand how much the debt was, is it was 10 or 100 denarii. 100 denarii. 100 denarii, denarii represents basically a day's wage. Now, for many of us, we work about 250 to 275 days a year. This would represent over one-third of your total annual income. Think about that. If you make $30,000, this guy would have owed you and stolen from you over a third of that $10,000. Is it a small offense if somebody takes away one third of your income? I mean, other than the government, right? Because they take a third of your income. But is it a small offense if a friend takes and steals a third of your income or borrows it and doesn't pay it back. Yes, it's a big problem. But is it anywhere close to what he was forgiven of? No, it's not even close to $1.5 billion. So look at what happens. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. And I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison so he, until he could pay the debt. Think about that, y'all. Do you notice the similarities between what he said to the king and what his fellow servants said to him? Be patient with me. I'll try to pay back the debt. And the king forgave him, and then here he is with someone. It's a significant issue, but he's just been forgiven $1.5 billion. And his response is drastically different. This is why I tell you that a person who cannot forgive is a person who has forgotten what they were forgiven of. Because immediately, he becomes judge. And that's what you do when you refuse to forgive. You become judge. You convict them, you put them into prison, and you set a payment for their release. They need to suffer this long. They need to pay back to me in forgiveness and, and attempts to apologize. They, they need to serve me. You set the penalty for their release. And then the other servants heard what had happened. And they told the king, and the king calls the servant back in. And the master called the servant back in. You wicked servant, he said. 
I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he paid back all that he owed. Do you know that some Christian psychiatrists actually connect in this verse unforgiveness to the torment of depression and anxiety. Because when we're unwilling to forgive, it invites a constant repetition of the offense and hurt. And the king hands him over to be tortured because he refused to be a forgiver the same way that he was forgiven. You know, every time Jesus tells a parable, every single time, he waits until somebody asks, hey, can you tell me about that parable? I didn't understand it. And then he gives an interpretation. But he realizes that this is such a significant truth bomb that he needs to go ahead and offer up an interpretation. It's the only time in the Gospels that Jesus tells a parable and then immediately after, without being questioned, tells what it means. And he says this in verse 35 in Matthew 18. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. See, unforgiveness is a huge issue in the Scriptures. It's a massive issue. Constantly throughout the, the Scriptures, we find that Jesus is pointing us to be forgivers the exact same way that we have been forgiven. As a matter of fact, there are more verses in the New Testament, especially in the teaching of Jesus, that show us that there is a connection between our forgiveness and our capacity to be forgiven. More teaching directly on that than there is on the effects of murder or adultery or you name it. As a matter of fact, look at this. I'm going to walk you through some of this in the teaching of Jesus. Later in the teaching of Jesus, this is about one week before He's crucified, in Mark chapter 11, He says, but when you are praying, first forgive anyone that you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. But if you refuse to forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. It doesn't get any more plain than that. It doesn't get any more plain. And then let's go back to the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive them, if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Again, it doesn't get more plain than that. From the very beginning to the very end of his teaching, Jesus is reiterating that our capacity to be forgiven should connect to our capacity to forgive. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus again speaking, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will all come back against you. 
Forgive others and you will be forgiven. And then in the Lord's Prayer, have y'all ever noticed how uncomfortable the Lord's Prayer is? We say it on football fields and on baseball diamonds and on basketball courts. We say it at family events. We say it all across the world and so many times we don't think about the words that we're saying. But have you ever noticed how uncomfortable what Jesus taught us to pray is? Because look at the words and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I mean, come on, y'all. Is it any more clear? It's not. It can't be any more clear. Jesus makes it perfectly clear for us that our capacity to forgive is directly connected to our forgiveness. Which is why a Christian who cannot forgive does not fully understand what they have been forgiven of. You're in the wake of the Ted Haggard ordeal in Colorado. His wife actually became a public figure because now this family that had founded a church, this family that had been in ministry and devoted themselves to proclaiming God's word, now all of a sudden they're in the spotlight and she didn't ask for it. She didn't do anything to earn it. And most women, just to be perfectly honest, most women would have walked would have left, would have walked away from that situation. But I love that just days after all of the news broke and everybody knew what she had probably known all along, she wrote this letter to the church. Dear women of New Life Church, I'm so sorry for the circumstances that have led me to write this letter to you today. I know your hearts are broken. Mine is as well. Yet my hope rests steadfastly in the Lord who is forever faithful. What I want you to know is that I love my husband, Ted Haggard, with all my heart. I am committed to him till death do us part. We started this journey together and with the grace of God, we will finish together. If I were standing before you today, I would not change one iota of what I've been teaching the women of our church. For those of you that have been concerned that my marriage was so perfect, I could not possibly relate to women who are facing great difficulties, know that this will never again be the case. My test has begun. Watch me. I will try to prove myself faithful. I love you all so much. To all the church family of New Life Church, Ted and I are so proud of you. You are all that we hoped you would be. In our minds, there is no greater church. And as you try to make sense of the past few days, know that Ted believes with all his heart and soul everything that he has taught you. 
those things that you are putting into practice. He is now the visible and public evidence that every man, woman, and child needs a Savior. We are grateful for your prayers for our family. I hold you forever in my heart. Gail Haggard. Why could she say that? Because she made a decision that I have been forgiven of an unpayable debt. And so I must forgive in the same way. Now some of you today, you came in with heavy burdens. But I want you to understand that as heavy as your burden is, it doesn't compare to the burden that our sin leveraged onto Jesus. It was a debt that none of us could have ever paid. But Jesus made the decision to take your burden of sin onto Himself. The man who knew no sin became sin so that we could find the righteousness of God. And on the cross, He bore our sins, paying forever the debt that we owed to God, nailing it to the cross, announcing that it's paid in full, which is why I think it's one of those reasons that at the very end of His crucifixion, He yelled, it's finished! It's paid! It's over with! Some of you, Today is the day that you need to finally look at those that have wounded you so deeply and say, it is finished. You are forgiven, you are released, and I'm letting go of that offense. Because every opportunity for offense is going to leave you changed. It's either going to make you better, or it's going to make you bitter. The choice lies in whether you're willing to forgive. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.